Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, you've probably heard the definitions of optimists and pessimists. I mean, the, the one that everybody knows is that an optimist sees the glass as half full and the pessimist sees it as half empty. You've probably also heard the optimist sees the donut, the pessimist sees the whole. Uh, that's another clear definition of the optimist and the pessimist. I found some great cartoons, though, that show optimists in a church context. Uh, made plans to meet his wife for lunch at 1pm after the 12 noon committee of management meeting. Uh, here's another eternal optimist. Put out all the chairs for the Wednesday night Bible study. But my, my particular favourite and kind of seems appropriate in this context is put on her shoes when the minister said, in conclusion. There's a, a supreme optimist right there, isn't it? Optimists are those people who always try to see the positive side of things. They're the every cloud has a silver lining people. They're the always look on the bright side of life people. Now, we started looking at Philippians last week and really those first 11 verses, they're just a standard kind of an introduction. Most of Paul's letters will start that way, saying who it is that's writing, who they're writing to, a brief account of, uh, of, of, the, of the congregation, and then a prayer for them as well. So that's what we had in those first 11 verses. So verse 12 is where the main part of the letter begins. Now, when you start reading through this section, starting in verse number 12, you may be thinking that Paul is just trying to be a bit of an optimist. He's in prison in Rome and the future's not looking particularly good for him. And you could think that he's just trying to see the silver lining in an otherwise very dark cloud, but that's a mistake to think that. This is not a man who's trying to look for the bright side of life. What shines through in this passage is Paul's priority in his life. And the priority that he wants the Philippians to have in their life and in their church and the priority that he wants us to have as well. The Philippians are well aware that Paul is in prison. They've already sent someone from their church to try and help support him in his time in prison, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And he has returned to the church in Philippi, presumably bringing this letter that we're actually now looking at. That this is Paul's correspondence sent via Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi. So the main body of his letter begins kind of the way that you would expect it to. They're clearly worried about how Paul is, what his situation is going to be like in prison. So he begins with these words, verse number 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul, the travelling evangelist, has been thrown into jail and he says, this is a positive thing. Really? I mean, how do you figure that? Being thrown into prison as being a positive thing. Well, he says there are two upsides to his time in jail. Paul has got the chance to speak to a bunch of people about Jesus that he would have never otherwise met. The prison guards, he says. Verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Not sure if you know of John Chapman, but John Chapman worked as an evangelist for the Anglican Church for many years, was the head of their department of evangelism. And John would never miss an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, always respectfully and always polite, but always keen to share what it was that he believed. 
Uh, he did a lot of travel in his job and particularly a lot of overseas travel. He said that when you sit down on a plane, very often the first question the person sitting next to you asks is, so what do you do for a living? And so Chapo always had the same answer. He would always say, well, it's the darndest thing, but they actually pay me to talk to people about Jesus. Uh, And hence the conversation would begin on the lengthy flight to London or wherever it was. I'm sure there'd be quite a few passengers who would have got to hear about Jesus before the flight was over. But you can kind of see how it might have worked with Paul, can't you? Uh, New guard comes on duty. He's assigned to guard the Apostle Paul and says, so how come you're in here? And I'm sure that Paul would have said, well, it's the darndest thing, but it's all because of this man named Jesus. So Paul says that there has been an upside, a positive side to his imprisonment. He's, he's managed to get to share the gospel with people that he would have otherwise never met. But he says that there is a second upside, verse 14. Because of my chains, Paul says, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Others have seen Paul's example, his courage in the face of hardship, and they've been encouraged to be even more public about their own faith, to share with others the good news about Jesus. Being in prison is a win-win, Paul says. He gets to speak to people that he would have never met and others outside of the jail are now starting to share their faith with other people. The gospel is the winner. That's why Paul's excited. The history of the Christian church has been plagued by those who have preached about Jesus for less than pure motives, let's say. Some have done it for power, to be able to influence and control the lives of others. Some have done it as a money-making venture. And it seems that those preaching the gospel from false motives were there right at the very beginning of the church. Uh, Look at what Paul says about those who've preached in the next paragraph down. He starts talking about those who've preached for false motives. He says that some some of them are preaching out of envy, presumably envying him as an apostle, rivalry, thinking that they can establish their own church rather than the one that Paul has established, and self-ambition. Paul has encountered this in other churches as well. You read through his other letters and you see that he's dealt with these same problems before. But the thing that amazes me with the way that he deals with this here is, look at what he says in verse number 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. When you read through Paul's letters, his other letters, you see that there's one thing that he will not tolerate. He will not tolerate false gospels. He will not tolerate people telling half-truths about Jesus or people not telling the whole truth about Jesus or people telling lies about Jesus. He is critical of those people. But so long as people are preaching the truth, Paul says he doesn't mind what their motive is in doing it. So long as they're getting the message about Jesus out there clearly to other people, he doesn't care what their motive is, so long as Christ is being preached. Paul's greatest concern is to see the truth about Jesus communicated to as many people as possible. Well, then we move down to the next paragraph and we have Paul's thoughts on his future. He has no idea how the trial will turn out. 
He's clearly hoping that he'll get out of jail and have the opportunity to see the Philippians again. But he's also brutally realistic about his possi- about the possibilities that stand in front of him. He may end up dying as a result of the trial. And he says that however it turns out, he continues to hope that he will be a good witness, no matter what the result is. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then look at what he says next, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, he knows that his future is not in the hands of his jailers. He knows that his future is in God's hands. If he dies, well, he gets to go to be with Jesus, which he says is by far better. And if he lives, well, he gets to continue working and preaching the good news about Jesus, telling more and more people about Jesus. And verse 23 says that if the choice was up to him, he's not sure which one he'd choose. Live, die, not sure which one I would prefer. If I die, I get to go to be with Jesus. If I live, I get to tell more people about Jesus. So which one am I going to choose? Verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul knows that his fate is firmly in God's hands. That's why he can have confidence as he sits in this prison cell. He's been released from prison before by God, you might remember, when he was in Philippi. It's always intrigued me that we know almost nothing about how the apostles die. There are some legends and traditions that kind of float around, but there's almost nothing recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. When the book of Acts tells us about Paul's imprisonment, his time in Rome, and it takes us right up to the beginning of this trial that Paul seems to be facing here in Philippians. But the book finishes before the trial starts. I mean, why didn't Luke just wait a little bit longer and then just write one more chapter and put it in at the end of Acts so that we could know what the result was? I mean, did Paul die as a result of the trial? Did he die while he was waiting on trial? Did he get released and go on to Spain? Well, the fact is we don't know. And those who wrote the New Testament obviously didn't think we needed to know. And I have a funny feeling that Paul wouldn't have wanted us to know either. Because Paul knows that it's not about him. It's about Jesus. He didn't want people fixating on him and his life. He wanted people fixating on Jesus. Well, the section closes, starting in verse 27, with, per, with Paul's first challenge in this letter. And there'll be a few more of them to come. But the first challenge says this. Pick it up in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending, it actually literally says, as one soul for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul has clearly given them the example of his own life. 
He's clearly shown them the gospel priority for him in the decisions that he makes and his plans for the future. And this isn't just a challenge to the individual members of the church in Philippi. This is a challenge to the whole church. This is a challenge for them to be united for the sake of the gospel. He uses that great expression there, standing firm in one spirit, contending as one soul for the sake of the gospel. When my kids were growing up, I had the uh, great pleasure of being able to coach their soccer teams. And I remember when Jacob started first playing soccer in uh, Mullumbimby. He was in the under six Hornets in Mullumbimby. Frightening name. It was a frightening team too, I can tell you. Uh, This isn't them, but I'm not sure if you've ever seen five-year-olds play soccer. doesn't actually bear any resemblance to the game itself. Um, it's really a game that's called Every Man for Himself. You might as well take their shirts off because they've got no idea where they're going or what they're doing. Uh, it's Every Man for Himself. You get in there, and this photo kind of seems to demonstrate that, you get in there, kick the ball as hard as you can in whatever direction you can. I remember in Jacob's under six Hornets team, there was one of the kids scored an own goal and was running around high-fiving everybody because he'd managed to score a goal. Sure, the other team were now in the lead, but he'd scored a goal. Uh, But as kids mature, as they get a bit older, they understand the purpose of the game and they cotton on to that whole thing of teamwork. It's no good if we're all standing around the ball. We need to spread out and pass the ball to each other. We need to work as a team. We need to work together. We need to contend as one. And that's what Paul's saying to the church here in Philippi. Stand firm in one spirit. Contend as one soul for the sake of the gospel. He wants them individually to be living lives that are worthy of the gospel but he wants them to be united in their purpose as a church. He wants them to be united for the sake of the gospel. Not sure if you know this, but when Greek was written back in Paul's day, this is actually what it looked like. Uh, there were no paragraphs, there were no, there's no punctuation, there's not even any breaks in between the words. It's just using the space as well as you can, filling it up with Greek text. So when the gospel, when the translators get in there to do their work, they have to figure out what the sentences would be and what the paragraphs would be. And, and what you have in the passage in front of you there is four paragraphs. Uh, and I think the translators have got it right. They've identified what these four major thoughts are in these four paragraphs. In that first paragraph, starting verse 12, Paul wants to talk about the positive side of his time in jail. In the next paragraph, he wants to talk about those who are preaching the gospel for false motives. Third paragraph, he wants to talk about what his future might be. And then in that fourth paragraph, he wants to give them the challenge. But there's one common theme in all four of those paragraphs, isn't there? One idea that stands at the heart of this chapter. In fact, it's the idea that stands at the heart of this book. It's the priority and importance of the gospel. Paul's concern in this letter, Paul's concern in his life is this gospel message. The gospel is the most important thing for him. Doesn't matter if he's in jail so long as he gets to advance the gospel. Doesn't matter that some people are preaching Christ for false motives so long as they're telling the truth about Jesus, Paul's thrilled to bits. 
And the challenge that he gives to the Philippians? Well, to stand firm for the sake of the gospel, to be united, to have the gospel as their priority. And that's the challenge Paul would want to give to us here in Campbell Street as well. It's very easy to read the Apostle Paul and say, oh yeah, but he was an apostle. I mean, of course the gospel is going to be his priority. But the challenge he gives for Philippians and the challenge that he would want to give us is that our lives should be shaped by the gospel as well. That we would make sure that the gospel is our priority in what we do. That as a church... We know that our purpose is to stand firm in one spirit, contend as one soul for the sake of the gospel. It was a wise man who said that the good can often become the enemy of the best. Sometimes as a church we can be distracted by good things, but things that are less than the best not the most important. And the way that we can measure how our church is going is it's not by bums on seats, it's not by dollars in the plate. The way that we measure how our church is going is are we standing firm in one spirit? Are we contending as one soul for the sake of the gospel? Verse 